Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're picking it up in our series, Jesus is King, going through the Gospel of Mark, and our text will be verses 14 through 29, a story in Mark that I've been excited to get to for a number of weeks. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29, and I'll give you a few seconds to get there. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read through the entire story, and then we'll go back uh, at key parts of the text, make some sense of it, and respond together in worship and in prayer. This is uh, the gospel writer Mark talking about Jesus. Verse 14. It says, "When the when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them." And scribes were arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, speaking of Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit in him that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad replied, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the spirit came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them were saying, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind. This is the word of the Lord. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you were coming up against an obstacle or you felt stuck, or whatever it is that you were facing could be described as something that you were unable to fix. Turn to somebody next to you and just say, this kind, this kind. And as you say that, I want you to to understand, I want you to see in this text, this is one of the reasons I love this text, is because the disciples can relate to you too. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you just couldn't fix it, You had no answers. You didn't even have Christian answers. You've read the Bible, but the the longer you read it, the more you're able to say, gosh, I can't fix this situation. I'm just stuck. 
I want you to know that the disciples are people just like you and me. They can relate to you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience reading through the scriptures or hearing sermons or devotionals and the types of stories that we might be used to hearing from the Bible are those outlandish, like, save the world type stories, the David and Goliath stories where David slays the giant. We know about those stories. We know about Peter doing awesome things and Paul starting churches and so-and-so just like blowing the lid off of society with some incredible sermon or work of miracles or something like that. But these are the stories. I don't know if you can relate to this, but these are the stories that grab my heart because I see somebody just like me in a situation that we might be able to relate to, situations where we're unable. It's those helpless situations that we come across that we don't have answers for, where our normal list of go-tos, our strategies, whether they're spiritual or relational or practical, just don't seem to work anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. Now, in this case, it's with a dad and his son. He's having some demonic attacks there. For you, it might be that. It might be something else. It might be something in your career. It might be a relationship. It might be something in your family. It might be something in society. But there are those moments where we wake up on Monday and we're like, I don't know how to deal with this and I can't fix it. If you've ever had those moments, you're in good company because Peter and the rest of the boys are saying the same thing. And I think it might even take a little more of an intensified feeling of emotion for us because we also know we're the church. Like our, our whole job, our, our role being in society and being in Santa Barbara is to do what the rest of the world can't do. We're here for transformation. We're here for healing. We're here to see God's kingdom come and his will done on earth in Santa Barbara in our neighborhood as it is in heaven. And so maybe even more frustrating for us when our kids aren't following Jesus like we always pictured that they would. Maybe more frustrating for the Christian when our career isn't looking the way that it was supposed to look, the way that we imagined it and dreamed about it. More frustrating for us as Christians when we're sick, when our loved ones pass away when church doesn't look the way that we were hoping it would, when our needs aren't being met, when we find ourselves not able to meet the needs of others, we find a helpless situation where we, like the disciples, are described as unable. And it's in this passage, and I, I wanna skip all the way to the end of chapter nine. We're in, for those of you joining us, we're in chapter nine, verse 14 through 29 of the Gospel of Mark. And Towards the end, Jesus kind of just tells us that the reason you're unable to do certain things is because certain things can only happen through prayer. If the first point is sometimes we're unable to deal with, with things, sometimes life is out of our control, my second point would be sometimes only prayer works. Look at this passage. I, I just want to read it. Verse 28 and 29. When he had entered the house, his disciples pulled him aside privately and asked, why could we not cast this demon out? And he says to them, here's the answer, here's why. He says, this kind, someone turn to your neighbor and say, this kind 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Or if I could rephrase what Jesus is saying, there's certain things in your life that can only happen through prayer. Can I get an amen from somebody? Now, the reason I say sometimes only prayer will work is because I also want to guard against the proclivity I have sometimes, and maybe you do too, I don't know, the proclivity we have of using heightened spiritual language like prayer to avoid personal responsibility. Because of course, yes, prayer is, we could say prayer is the answer to everything. It's like the nursery school answer, right? What's the answer to two plus two? Jesus! Well, yes, I guess, but also four, right? When you have a flat tire, what's the answer if you ask my kid? Jesus! Well, yes, okay, but also AAA, okay? When your marriage is on the rocks because you've just been a jerk, (laughs) what's the answer? Jesus and prayer, well, yes, but also say you're sorry, right? Sometimes I've noticed in myself, like I can use these abstract theological phrases like prayer to avoid what I just know I'm supposed to do, repent, or just do the right thing. Um, But we can also swing to the other side, right? If one side is we use spiritual language to avoid responsibility, the other side is we take things into our own hands and we just grow so confident in our own ability to get things done that we forget that there's a spiritual component. We forget that we need Jesus. We forget that prayer changes things. And that is the end of the spectrum that I think this passage is addressing. Because here's the funny thing about the disciples. They've done this before. They've, they've cast demons out in this book not too long ago. Actually, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter six. I want you to see this for yourself. This is why I want you to bring your Bibles or your Bibles on your devices. I want you to see. We're going through the Gospels to see the life of Jesus. I want you to see this for yourself. Verse 13, Mark chapter 6, and it says, And they, speaking of the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they were healed. Bam! Right there. They've done this before. They haven't just done this once or twice. It says they cast out many demons and just heal. Like, it sounds like as an aside, like as they were going, they anointed people with oil and they got healed too. Like just like a, <laughs> a mention. Like this, is so, this seems so casual in chapter six. They're doing this like it's nothing. There's just a flow of power that's been turned on and they're casting demons out left and right. They're healing the sick. And so my question today is, what was the difference between that in chapter six and what we see now in chapter nine, where they're coming to Jesus saying, why can't we do this anymore? And we already know the answer. Jesus says it's because of prayer. You're lacking prayer. But I want to dig into what prayer actually means in this example. And for that, I just, I actually want to invite you into this whole section in chapter six, all the way back in verse seven, because you're going to see how the disciples were prepared to do the work of the ministry. Look at this. We'll just, we'll just read verse 7 through 13 in chapter 6 now. Look at the proximity to Jesus that the disciples have. This is unbelievable. It says he called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority 
over unclean spirits. And then he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, just wear sandals, which is probably the rainbow brand or the Hawaiian locals only, I'm guessing, just from the context here. And not to put on two tunics. So he's like, just take one jacket, just take a pair of sandals, you don't need much. He's like, you don't need much for this. I'll give you what you need. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So now he's training them. He's training the disciples. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So there's the context. What do you think is the difference between chapter six and chapter nine? They're spending a lot of time with Jesus. Look at all the things that we see happening in this little section of scripture and tell yourself, God, what would happen if we had this from Jesus? Look at this. There's a, there's a calling from Jesus on the disciples. He's calling them to himself. There is a sentness. There's a commissioning. He doesn't just call them to himself. He actually commissions them with a role and a responsibility. There's an authorization happening. He actually gives them the necessary power from heaven that they're going to need to cast out demons and heal the sick. He then charges them, he, uh, saying, you, you don't need this laundry list of things. You don't need these resources. You don't need that. You don't need an extra walking stick. You don't need an extra jacket. You certainly don't need that jacket, bro. Like, leave that at home. You just need a little windbreaker. Like, he's talking with them preparing them, saying, you've got what you need. You got everything I'm giving you. And he doesn't stop there. He actually trains them he says, by giving them case studies. He's like, if this happens, here's what I want you to do. Oh, but if this happens, this is what you're gonna do. I just want you to imagine if you had this with Jesus right now. Like, name a problem in your life. You're like, I am a new parent and I don't know what I'm doing. I got two kids when Abby was first born, I remember driving outside a cottage and looking in the rearview mirror and seeing like bobblehead in the seat in the back and it hit me in that moment. I don't know what I'm doing. How cool would it be if Jesus was just there and he was like, all right, sit down, listen. I'm calling you as a parent. I'm sending you as a parent. I'm authorizing you with all the power that you're gonna need and here's what I don't want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to get distracted in. And here's some things you're gonna run up against. When Abby cries, here's what you do. When she sleeps, here's what you do. And, she, and Jesus just goes through this laundry list of examples of things that I would run into. That would be the greatest thing ever. And this is exactly what the disciples are getting. And it says in verse 13, they went out and cast out demons and it worked. And if you might remember in Mark 6 when we were there, there's a little blip, kind of a vignette about John the Baptist, but then it comes back to the story. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They came back to Jesus. They're like, it worked. Everything you said to us was true. And I want you to see, Jesus doesn't stop training them. Look at verse 31. He said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So now he's telling them to take a break. Do you see the difference? In chapter 6, where they're extremely effective 
in the work of God in their life and in their neighborhood and in their sphere of ministry, they are so reliant on Jesus Christ for everything, for his words and for his training, for his proximity, for his presence, even for Jesus to tell them to stop working and to rest. I don't know the backstory in verse uh, chapter nine, but when Jesus says this kind can only be driven out by prayer, what I'm guessing, what I, I, I wonder is if they just tried to repeat a mantra. They just tried to do some kind of demon casting out strategy, but they, they lost that proximity to Jesus. And I say all of this because all of you, when I say prayer, are immediately thinking of something specific in particular. You might think of prayer as a devo in the morning. You might think of prayer as asking God for stuff. You might call to mind an intercessory prayer meeting at church. Uh, there's all sorts of styles in which we pray. What I want you to see here is that when Jesus is talking about prayer, he's talking about that broad idea of what prayer actually is, out of which come from, uh, out of which emerge all of the different styles that we use in practice. If I could describe what we see here, prayer is simply just a constant reliance on a source of power. Uh, at Reality, we like, to re we like to refer to prayer broadly as communion with God. And there's different ways we do that. We ask God for stuff, but sometimes we sit in silence in awareness of his presence just to be with him. Sometimes we sing our words. Sometimes we repeat words together and recite them. Sometimes we have nothing to say, but there's groanings too deep for words, as Paul would say to the Roman church. So there's different ways to pray and different styles, but the one theme that we could describe prayer as is a constant communion, and in this case, reliance on God. That's what I think that they were missing in our text today in chapter nine. And Jesus says, bro, these types of problems can only be answered by prayer. There's no mantra, there's no secret formula, there's no strategy, there's no amount of problem solving that you can work up or manufacture that will take care of this thing that you're facing in your life, you're stuck. Some things in life can only be dealt with by a constant communion and reliance on me. Now, my last question is, I kind of started at the beginning and jumped to the end of the text. Who in the story models this kind of prayer, this kind of reliance? Jesus. <laughs> oh, it's actually not Jesus in this case, even though he's the best prayer of all. His, his relationship with the Father is astounding, but he's not praying here. Who is? Well, the disciples aren't either. They're really struggling. In fact, it's their lack of prayer that got them in this mess. Anyone else? The father. Look at the dad. I actually think that when Jesus is teaching the disciples that certain things can only happen through prayer, he might be referring back to the model we see in this desperate father. Let's read that passage together. Verse 19, we're back in chapter nine again. What does prayer look like? I think it looks like this. Uh, actually, let's skip ahead to 
verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to your boy? He said, from childhood, it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if I can. (laughs) All things are possible for the one who believes. Here it is. Here's what I think this entire passage hinges on. Verse 24, immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And immediately, almost as a response to this dad's prayer, Jesus heals the boy. What is it about that prayer? It's kind of a a prayer that's wrestling with a bit of attention, right? It's expressing this dad's true heart desire. I, I, I do believe, I, I at least wanna believe, but I can't. I wanna believe in you, Lord, but like, I'm, I'm struggling with doubts. I know you can do what you say you can do. I'm just in this hard spot right now, Lord, help me. I believe in you, but my, my mind is plagued with weakness, help me. Maybe some of you are saying similar things. I, Lord, I wanna follow you. I believe in who you say you are, but the last two years have been some of the worst of my life and I'm so tired, help me. It's almost like the dad in a simple, single prayer is expressing two things. The desire of his heart, I want you to heal my boy, and the weakness of his heart. I'm having a hard time believing that this is possible. And he's inviting Jesus into that tension. I want you to heal my boy. I also want you to heal me of my doubt. In other words, this is a wholehearted prayer. It's not a dad or a person who's giving to God what he thinks God wants to hear from him. Jesus, the answer is prayer. It's giving to God what's actually there. And it's a mixture of two things, the desire of a broken person's heart and the weakness of a broken person's heart. And Jesus, in this moment, steps into that tension and says, I'm the person you've been waiting for. I think if we were to back up to look at this section of scripture, There are moments in life where we're unable to fix certain things and sometimes only prayer will work, but what does prayer look like? It's most fundamental, in its most fundamental property, it's just, it's a reliance on communion with God. It's relying on him. And I I wonder if, well, I suspect that in this moment, Jesus is not saying, in those moments of your need, blurt out a prayer of reliance. Actually, I'll bet the disciples in that moment probably prayed something, even if it was, come out of him. Demon, come out. What it seems like Jesus is referring to is not a moment of prayer, but a lifestyle of prayer. A lifestyle of constant reliance on the power of God in their life. 
which means that this isn't something that you just wake up and wait for a crisis to land in your lap before you start doing. It's something we cultivate. It's something we cultivate tomorrow when things are easy or things are tough. And before we, uh, we respond through singing and communion and prayer, I want to give you a way to bring this into your life. Uh, we call it as a church, we use the word daily office to refer to it. Um, that's an old, ancient phrase. Uh, it might sound weird to you to hear the word office in terms of prayer, but it comes from this Latin word opus, which means work. And that's what the ancient church used to believe about prayer, was that it was daily work. And the daily office is a practice that actually goes back into the apostles' day, actually in Jesus' day, even the days of the psalmists. And it's very simple. It has nothing to do with the content of your prayer or the style of your prayer, but rather the frequency and the habit of your prayer. The daily office was this ancient practice in which people would carve out specific times during the day that they would set apart to face God. That's why um, some parts of the church world refer to this as fixed hour prayer. We actually see the disciples doing this when you're reading through the book of Acts and Peter's going to the temple to pray. It's always at 9 a.m. or at noon or right before dinner. The psalmists would say this frequently. I rise up in the morning and at noonday and at evening to pray. Daniel the reason he got in trouble <laughs> in, uh, I think it was chapter six, was because he got on his knees in his room at a very particular time of the day to pray. It was morning prayers. Why do we see Jewish people? Why do we see Jesus who grew up, not just as a rabbi, but as a Hebrew boy? Why do we see the psalmist? Why do we see the apostles not just praying sporadically through the day when they are in a crisis, but carving out moments in the day to pause and pray. It's almost like they were creating a rhythm, a rhythm of awareness to God. I actually want to challenge and invite you to try this for a week. One week, starting tomorrow. There's different ways of doing it. The psalmist actually in one, in one verse says, seven times I rise to pray. Uh, the apostles did morning, at least morning, noon, and evening, but I just want to make this simple, not complicated, and not difficult, because I just want us to try it, morning and evening. This is what I want to invite you to do. Starting tomorrow, or tonight, I want you to carve out a moment in the morning and in the evening in which you're going to turn your attention towards God. And it doesn't even have to be crazy or complicated. In fact, I want you intentionally to stick to between two and 10 minutes. This is nothing at all. In other words, I don't want you to get over, you know, overburdened like Monday morning. You're like, I'm going to pray for two hours. And then Tuesday, you never do it again. <laughs> like Sunday, you come back. You're like, Pastor, it failed. That was terrible. Never do that to me. Two to 10 minutes. And for some of you, you might pick a time. And you need to pick a time or a, or a placeholder. Why? Because if you don't, your day will be crowded with all sorts of other things that are way more urgent than prayer. Can I get an amen? So you're going to prioritize. I need God. 
Now, this could be a time. He might be like, I get up at six, so I'm gonna do this at seven. Or I get up at nine, <laughs> and I'm gonna do this at 10. Or it might be a trigger in your day. Maybe you're like, as soon as I eat breakfast. Or at night, as soon as I get ready for bed. Or right after I take a shower. Whatever it is, just pick two placeholders. One in the morning, one in the evening. For two to 10 minutes where you are going to turn your attention to God. You might be asking, well, what do I do in that section? I wanna give you some ideas. And I want you to remember at the top that it doesn't, it matters less what you do in the space it matters more that you're carving out the space. So here for me, I actually don't care as much what you do in that space as much as I care about your pausing. But if you're wondering, I, I wanna know what to do. Oh, well, let me give you some examples that the church has used for centuries. One of them is silence. For those of you that are overwhelmed by words, you're like, I, I, this is why I hate praying is because I feel like I have to manufacture new words every time. Well, sit in silence. The psalmist said in Psalm 62, in silence, O Lord, my soul waits, for from him comes my salvation. Do you know you could pray that way? You can just sit with no agenda, no bullet points, no problem solving, and just be in the presence of God. Now, if you're like me, you're like, oh, I wanna do that, but I need like a, like a next step. What do I do in that space? Well. If you've been here for a while, you might recall a practice we've done here called palms up, palms down. Try that. You don't have to try that. I'm just throwing out ideas. Palms up, palms down. This will take you five minutes. You sit, get intentional, quiet before the Lord. Put your palms down on your legs as a symbol that you are releasing something. The Apostle Peter says, I cast my cares on the Lord because he cares for me. So in the morning, you wake up, you put your palms down, you center yourself in the presence of God, and you imagine yourself releasing baggage into the open hands of God, the expectations of others, the expectation you have for yourself, the pressures of life, hurt, pain, you release it. And then the second part, palms up. You receive his love, you listen to his voice, and then you go to work. That's it. In the evening, silence again, if that's, if that's your theme. Uh, last week we did the examine where we look back on our day and play it like a film reel, asking, Lord, where were you active in my life that I might have missed you? So in the morning we're looking ahead, in the evening we're looking back all in silence. Those are just tools, you don't have to do those, but one way is silence. Another is scripture. Some of you wanna pray through scripture, you can do that. You can memorize the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23. Or if there's too many words there, you can uh, memorize the famous Jesus Prayer from Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Son of God, uh, so, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And before you ever move into the day, you're recalibrating yourself to Jesus. You come back home and right before you go to bed or right after you eat dinner, you could pray the Lord's Prayer, some benediction from scripture over yourself. You're like, I don't know where the benedict what a benediction is. Just Google it, okay? Google benedictions in the scripture. You'll get 30 of them. Or maybe it's not scripture. Maybe you, maybe you would find help by reading written prayers. I used to hate written prayers because I thought they lacked the spontaneity of my own prayers until I started using them. And I was like, this is really refreshing. Here's one of my favorites for the morning. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, Lord God, 
Almighty and everlasting Father, you've brought us in safety to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity. And in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Come back home, you eat your dinner, you tuck yourself in bed and you pray, the Lord Almighty grant me a peaceful night and a perfect end. Amen. I just want to give you ideas that the church has used a long time. But remember, it's not about the particular content or the style. And that's my point. What's important is that you carve out a time to pause multiple times a day to turn your reliance onto God who is there, but whom you may have forgotten in the moment and realized when you tried to cast out a demon that didn't want to come out. I'm going to ask Joseph and Mackenzie to come up as we respond with song. And as we do, I just want you to ask the Lord, as we endeavor to do this just for a week, to see one, to see if you experience the Lord in the moment, but to also see after a week if this doesn't actually begin to change how you react in moments of despair and crisis you don't start to sense him just a little bit more closely. That's my cue in the back over there. As we respond, not only through song, but also communion. There's communion to the right and to the left. There's prayer teams to the back. You can see their lanyards. They'd love to pray for you if you have anything in your life that you'd need prayer for. Or maybe you just need to sit down or kneel in front of your seat or go off to a corner and be with the Lord. But as we sing to the Lord and respond, begin to ask him, Lord, I want to pause and pray to you multiple times a day. Help me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And see if he does not show up in your life in precisely the fashion that you need him to right now.